You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Eric Prum, Josh Williams, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So you are the co-founders of Very Great. Um, we're going to explore the landscape of brands that you've been um, building for the past few years. But I would love, as we start off, for you to introduce each other. So I'd love for you, Eric, to start by introducing Josh, how you met him, a little bit about his background, and what is the first thing that you remember about Josh when you, when you first met him? I love that question. Uh, so, so Josh and I met our, our first day of college. We were, uh, randomly assigned, uh, roommates, uh, at the university of Virginia. And, uh, when, when he walked through the door, he walked through with a, a, a stack of cookbooks, a, a little bit taller than myself. Um, and wow. it was, it was a very curious, a curious thing to me at the time. Um, it led to our, our, the creation of our first branding company. But Josh today sort of serves many different roles at the company, but uh, primarily is the sort of creative drive uh, within both the platform and all of our brands, uh, among a zillion other things. I think that's one of the most exciting things that he brings to the table. And, um, you know, we've been working together for the better part of 15 years now. Now, is, what did Josh go to uh, college for? Economics? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so a stack of cookbooks wasn't necessarily like the well, thing that... Uh, well, he took a year off and went to culinary school in uh, Italy and came back. At, at, you know, he was way ahead in credits. Uh, I was on the opposite side of that. But he came back and we started a uh, catering company in Charlottesville, Virginia. That was our, our very first endeavor. Uh, that we ran for about a year and a half. And it was at that point we decided that we we wanted to be in business together in some form. So leaving school, that was always the plan. Wow. Well, you know, this this story reminds me very much of um, Porter Road. We did an episode with them and, and they, uh, the co-founders, started cooking together in a commercial kitchen restaurant uh, and, and decided to start their business together that way. So I guess I think that's an environment where you definitely get really close with other people and get to know them really well. Yeah, ours wasn't a commercial kitchen. It was more like uh, crock pots and flat tops <laughs> yeah, in our dorm room. I understand. But, uh, <laughs> it was about this. No, very, very similar. Well, okay. Like, what, what, what about Josh? Let's, uh, let's switch over to you. And if you could introduce Eric and what you remember of him uh, when you met, met him for the first time. Yeah, man, this goes way back. So... When I met Eric, was walking into a dorm room, and I think he was standing on an Indo board with a paintball gun in his hands, which was <laughs> an interesting scene to walk into on your first day of college. But it was, uh, it was basically my best friend. You know, we've we've been working and living either together or in very close proximity for you know almost fifteen years now. So it's a unique relationship. You know, we have you know, families that are in similar stages, and it's a it's a really fun time, but you know, we when we started out, it was it was kind of a interesting complementary pairing. I think Eric always has been in, in very much a, a sales and um, development capacity. Whether that was in college when we had you know a, a small catering company together, and he was very much on the sales side of things, or you know immediately after college when he you know kind of took that background in uh, extreme sports because he was he was a professional paintball player which I'm sure we can dig into further <laughs> but he took that and went into retail and manufacturing from a from like a sales standpoint and that has always been kind of our, our complementary skill sets I think you know I took that education on the economics and business side we paired that with you know Eric's expertise really on the sales and um, and business building side and kind of were off to the races. Was there a moment um, where you felt you decided like, you know, I have to work with this guy, we're going to start a company together? Or was it a much more gradual process and it sort of happened organically? I would say that the, the timing was 
sort of a TBD or we didn't know when we were going to be able to get into business together, but it very much was the impetus. We moved from Virginia to New York with our best friends and girlfriends, now wives, all kind of at the same time with the idea that for some period of time we'd both be working on our own things to maybe put a a space of money or something to start a business together and then we would start the business. It was the same time that Kickstarter sort of existed on the same street actually that we were living and so we were able to... uh, Their first office? Their first office in in sort of Lower East Side. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there I've been there several times. I, I was I there it. when it when it was uh, cuz our, our me and Jesse started our company uh, you know with with Kickstarter back in 2009 and they I think they had less than 10 people in that office and then it gradually took over the whole the yeah. whole building. Yeah, totally. Uh we were we were probably exposed to them as they were taking over the building, uh but it was what 2012. Mm-hmm. So we launched our first product on Kickstarter and it really gave us literally the kickstart that we needed to to fund the business. So we really attribute much of what we're doing to to at very great to Kickstarter and and they really did give us that initial um, ability to to do a lot of different things. I think we were one of one of the first class of like physical products that did pretty well on Kickstarter. Um, so there were a lot of challenges there when it came to like fulfillment and shipping and getting all of that done, but we really owe them uh, a lot. Describe that first product and you know what you learned from that campaign. Sure. So the, the first product was squarely in a field that we were super interested in. So it was in food and beverage. And it, it basically embodied a process that we've continued to this day when it comes to product development. Um, we created a mason jar cocktail shaker, which combined something that was really on trend and top of mind in cocktail and mason jars at the time in 2012. It was a a really, you know, a trend that was moving. And we were able to create a truly functional product in the cocktail shaker. It was was glass, but it was a canning jar, so it was really durable and you could muddle in it. It had metric and imperial measurements on the side. The stainless steel cap and lid that we developed and redeveloped and redeveloped ended up being just like a hyper-functional, really trendy, cool product that resonated. And it, it ended up resonating on Kickstarter and then at wholesale. And we were able to to draw from from that success, you know, those elements of identifying really awesome macro trends and pairing them with with product that that really functions and really has a purpose. And that kind of dictated a lot of the things that we've done since. How did you go about getting people to find out about the Kickstarter? <laughs> Because <laughs> I feel like that's one of the hardest things, and that's a very frequent question. Like yeah. getting, because you have this like time pressure, right? Of I don't know how much, how long your campaign was, but you know, thirty days or something, and you have to get all those people. I'm I'm pulling up the the campaign now, and you, it looks like you raised about t- almost seventy five thousand dollars. Yeah, um, that's that's a lot, you know, to kind of sure, uh, especially if if you're just starting something brand new, and and people don't necessarily know you for for anything. Totally. I think there's an incredibly embarrassing Business Insider article uh, out there somewhere that outlines our exact step-by-step, who we were emailing, all of that. But it, it really started out by, I think we organically you know, sent it out to all of our friends and family and utilized our own network to get them to send it out to their network. And from there, we were able to beget a little bit of the success to get even more coverage. So we utilized the actual success of the campaign to get the coverage like we got on Business Insider that was actually (laughs) mid-campaign and led to another spike in coverage. Um, So it was everything from like, I think we were knocking down the door of like local New York City TV. You know, we had like, we were on the the local New York City, you know, news programming about these guys that had, you know, raised X amount of dollars for a mason jar thing. And that got another spike. So it was really just kind of hustling to everyone that would listen to us and definitely a... uh, a large uh, amount of leaning on friends and family who we're internally grateful uh, for still. I'm I'm pulling up the article now. <laughs> How a guy with a mason jar raised 30000 in four days on Kickstarter with a very embarrassing uh, photo of you <laughs> yes. for some reason just like and, pumping your fists in the air. Yeah, um, and note the 30000 <laughs> grew to seventy five. so something something in there worked. 
<laughs> well, that, it was interesting that there was there was a time there, and I think 2012 was an inflection point because that was the time we did our second Kickstarter campaign, and and the first one that we had done in 2009 raised thirteen thousand dollars, and that was like really big for the time. I, I think it was like the fourth or fifth biggest one back then, and the news articles were so um, weird back then because Kickstarter had there was like someone who had sent some postcards from her travels around the world and someone had like crowdfunded an album. And I think there was one about like Obama, uh, someone from the Obama campaign had produced a book. Like it was so random and there wasn't really any physical products. So the first one we did had wallets and, and leather goods. The articles were like trying to explain the concept of crowd crowdfunding from even the word crowdfunding didn't exist. So by 2012, the word Kickstarter existed, at least, in, in some people's minds. So you could have a headline like, you know, raise 30000 in four days on Kickstarter, which is great. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. That our, We were fortunate with our timing because I think just around there, like just before, there had been more of a, at least digitally national consciousness around what crowdfunding was and what Kickstarter was. So people were more willing to, say, put their... $30 or whatever it was into, into a physical good. But I think it was a relatively new concept that in 2012, we were fortunate to kind of hit that launch of a campaign with people actually beginning to understand what Kickstarter really was. Do you, I'm sure you get a lot of people who come to you for advice, especially people who are just getting started or are interested in doing a Kickstarter. What is your, you know, 20... 2020 advice for people who are like just getting started and and like should they consider crowdfunding? Sure. I mean, I think that crowdfunding uh, is a fantastic way to get something off of the ground. The consistent advice, at least I've given to new entrepreneurs that are looking to launch something there is that if if they do make sure that they've done their homework in the background, if it's a physical good, at least, if they've done their homework in the background to make sure they can actually produce what they're pitching, and putting out there, then they're going to save themselves a lot of headaches. I think that that to me is like the the greatest downfall is to kind of crowdfund your way into success with an unknown outcome from a, a physical product perspective. And we've talked to, counseled, and worked with a lot of people that might have pitched something that didn't quite exist yet, and there wasn't a clear path to creating that product. I think that that. That's the thing that if you can avoid, uh, you're going to have a lot of success on the other side. If you if you really know you can produce the product that you're you're putting out there. And I'd also add to that that it remains a, a really fantastic way to fund working capital for a business. If you put on your business hat for a second away from the the product side, and I totally agree with what Eric said, I think it it remains a, a pretty revolutionary time for Kickstarter and then some other. You know, funding sources for how people can can fund businesses to start leveraging technology. So I think it's a really still remains a fantastic tool for that. On the practical and, and logistical side, I do think that there's been a little bit of a reaction. I mean, I think people started off really optimistic about Kickstarter and like backed a few things and then some stuff never comes and that can leave a little bit of a sour taste. What are some of the things that you learned from from that process of of getting orders out and fulfilling um, in that you know in that first Kickstarter, yeah, I think we were really fortunate to have a great uh, funding base of people who were patient with us as we iterated on the product, and we actually released a two point that we we sent out. We were really fortunate to. I mean, I think at that time we really had to get our hands dirty when it came to actually we made every single one and and shipped every single one and dealt with you know individual customer service issues with each one and it it was really a, a learning curve for us to to actually do that and do that you know late night weekends weekdays in and out it was a it was just a good a good learning experience for us and we had very very patient backers which was wonderful. How did okay so describe a little bit about how that crowdfunding campaign became, you know, what, what WNP uh, became. 
Yeah. Um, so we, we were very clear, Josh and I, in our, in our initial vision to create our first brand and that that Kickstarter was the uh, the first step forward. So we had already been designing a collection of products that would be complementary to the Mason Jar Cocktail Shaker that we could sell as a collection. And Josh had really had the clear vision that the brand wouldn't just exist in one format, direct-to-consumer, via wholesale. We kind of looked at the, the company that we wanted to create in WMP and the collection and the sort of business strategy behind launching it as we were launching the Kickstarter was all happening together. So we were reaching out to, at that time, West Elm, who was uh, local. And I mean, they're a national uh, business, but their offices were local. And we were showing them what we were doing. And we were working on a collection with them at the very same time that we were fulfilling the, the Kickstarter campaign. So we we used the success of the Kickstarter to launch the collection that basically became the brand. I want to flash forward for like one second to today and just describe kind of the scale of what your whole ecosystem of brands look like and then we can kind of fill in the gaps. So now, what, uh, you you know, six, seven years later, uh, you have built kind of like a parent company, which is called Very Great, and you're building these different brands WP is like the first one, but now you're you're launching a couple more. Can you describe like the the state of Very Great today? For sure. So fast forwarding to today, Very Great is a platform for new consumer product brands, like you said. And within the platform, we've got three brands. So WP is still um, growing and and part of the platform and family of brands. And this time last year, we launched two new brands, uh, one called Current, which is in the consumer electronics space, and one called Wild One, which is in the uh, pet space. And how many people are, are at Very Great now across all the brands? So we're a team of about 55 people uh, wow. split between brand teams and the platform. And when you say platform, uh, describe what you mean by that. Yeah, so to take kind of a step back, what we wanted to create with Very Great was a platform with the resources that, if you rewind to that 2012 area, you know, were exactly what we would have wanted to have at our fingertips as you know, budding entrepreneurs in consumer products trying to build a brand. So along the way, we've tried to take that as the the impetus for building centralized resources that talented entrepreneurs that are running uh, their own brands can access. So that spans the gamut of a full-service creative team, which essentially acts as an agency among all brands. It's about 20 people with every uh, area of design covered through accounting and finance, legal, HR, and then from a, an operations and production standpoint, you know, a network of factories and relationships that fuel a lot of that growth of product and a backbone of operations from a logistics standpoint, including warehousing, distribution, and all of that is is centralized to power new brands. So the two the first two new brands um, that you launched, you've described this as like a way that um, you can have other entrepreneurs be um, involved, but are they are those two new brands the a wild one and Courant run by other people? Yes, absolutely. So the way we have developed brands is we bring in entrepreneurs and residents that we've had relationships with in the past and work together and and really um, admire, and they come on board to build new businesses, leveraging everything that the the platform has to offer. So for Wild One and Courant, both were developed through this entrepreneur in residence program where team members come in as co-founders to work on a specific area of consumer that we think you know, lacks innovation or needs something new um, and consumers uh, would benefit from that. And as teams of co-founders, then entrepreneurs and residents, they they work in the space to develop a brand, uh, build that, and launch it on the platform. 
So each of the new brands that we're building, so Karan Wild One, each have a team of co-founders that are, are really driving that, uh, that growth. And how do you figure out the, the equity or like who gets what part of the business? Yeah, so that's something we have sort of before, as we're recruiting the entrepreneurs and residents, we're just sort of very clear with how we're setting all of it up so that it's, it's kind of like set from, from the very beginning. You know, the, the way the platform works, we're offering a, a ton of, of services and a ton of, uh, we hope, a ton of value when it comes to the things that, that we're providing for the brands. And it makes it relatively easy because, you know, this isn't just a, um, you know, a studio where we're launching them and then sending them on their way. This is really a, a cohesive platform wherein we're, we're bringing the brands from idea to launch and then beyond. And so how much overlap is there in terms of teams or what are the functions that you see kind of each company needing to replicate and have within their company? Yeah, it's a it's a super important question and one that we're we're constantly fine-tuning. I think the goal when we launch the platform is to figure out, you know, really what functions would be best served from to be centralized uh, and shared across brands and and in that way generate the most network effects and you know be able to leverage a lot of the scale that you get from a platform. And what really needs to be brand specific and dedicated to that individual brand moment and ethos. And so we, we took that approach with each aspect of team building. And so anything that you can imagine is very tied specifically to a brand from creative direction, strategy, brand marketing, community management, partnerships, all of those are, are within the brand. And then things that can really benefit from uh, ec- you know, economies of scale, and the network effects of having multiple brands within one team. So that includes things like creative. Those are centralized at the platform level. So we've kind of gone you know, team by team and function by function and said, okay, looking at today's landscape of how digitally native brands are, are operating, what's the, what's the right way to set this up? And we've been able to do that at a pretty exciting time in consumer where a lot of those things are changing so if you look at our structure, it is, it is relatively unique. So it's only been, you know, what, like a year to a year and a half that you've kind of got these couple new brands going. Is that right? We started building the platform itself about three years ago. Gotcha. Um, in about a year into that, we started incubating and ideating around the first two brands. Um, and then, yeah, the, the Courant and Wild one launched in the, the mid-fall of last year. So they've been operating each on the platform uh, for a year. And it's really exciting to see what that year has entailed for both brands as each have slightly different omni-channel strategies and, and they're in totally different um, fields of consumer. It's been really exciting to see the strategy and plan play out over the past year. So is it too early to say, or were there certain assumptions that you had early on about how this whole kind of system would work um, that, that didn't pan out or that you've had to adjust for? Yeah, I think that it's a constant work in progress when it comes to the platform and how the platform is in, interfacing and integrating with the brands themselves. That's something that we're, we're learning over time. I think that we've, we've definitely made assumptions that we've had to sort of autocorrect when it comes to how... Um, people are spending time working with one another, um, but overall, it's it's been it's been a pretty good ride so far, um, and I think that it's it's good to differentiate the like the success of the actual brands out in the world and the success of how they're operating internally. But we've really in, enjoyed what's what's been happening with with both. Uh, when you say platform, my brain always just goes to to software, but is there something there in terms of internal tools that you're building that are shared across the different teams or is it yep. is it really just people? No, no, it's 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 both people, um, internal software uh, and the actual plumbing in physical like warehousing and distribution. So when it comes to like systems, we did spend a year building a fully custom sales force that is utilized by all three sales teams in a, in a way that creates a lot of efficiencies. We have, you know, when it comes to resources, 
shared pools of, of data and access to certain individuals when it comes to like marketing and PR. So it's a combination of systems, resources, and people that are all kind of coming together to, to create a, I mean, the hope is that it's creating a lot of efficiencies. Um, and we're, we are really seeing that in year one of each of the, the two new brands. It's definitely a concept that, um, a few different people are trying and we recently had trade coffee on the show. They're part of a, a group of brands that came out of New York as well called launch. And we've had blue land and M Jemmy and rockets of awesome also, uh, on the podcast. I, I don't know if you're familiar with those brands or how you would, um, describe like what you see, what, uh, at least from the outside, what they're doing that, that is similar or different from what you're doing. Yeah, totally. Definitely familiar with them and, and admire everything that they've done. And I think they've found a lot of success with, with their really like their incubator model, which, which is really interesting. I'd say if you wanted to contrast what, you know, how they operate from, from my perspective, which is an outsider's perspective and how we operate, I'd say we're much further integrated as brand and platform. So we, you know, from our perspective, there's a lot of value that can be added by having similar brands operating off of scaled infrastructure. So when you look at how our brands work within, say, a supply chain or a warehouse or through our distribution channels with some very large retailers, it's a very integrated process versus an incubator model where you might incubate a brand, get it to kind of the minimum vial product and then push it out in the world. And at that point, the incubator acts you know, really much as like an advisor to those teams. From our perspective, we saw a lot of value to having integrated infrastructure that could support those, those brands after they launch. So I'd say the, that as a platform, we're very connected and supportive of brands after they launch because they're still operating on this shared infrastructure. One of we've talked about it with Kickstarter, but obviously one of the biggest challenges when you're first starting is just having the cash to be able to buy inventory and 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 get you know your first batch of products manufactured. How does how do you help support that? Yeah, so everything is fully centrally financed, and so for each of the brands, they're all at dramatically different stages. You know, WMP's been around for seven years, and and like we've said, Crant uh, and Wild One have only been around for a year respectively. They have have different product roadmaps, different inventory needs. But Josh and I work with the co-founders, you know, to basically set up those budgets and plans for the year so that we can ensure that at, you know all of the the funding and, and budget is there based on the plans and the goals of the brand for that year. If you imagine, you know, flash forward like five years, like what is the what what does success look like uh, across the, across both like the platform itself and for the individual companies. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a great big question. I think from our perspective, we see things changing in the the consumer product world in the way that companies get started and grow over time. And I think if you look ahead five years, it's going to look very different than it looks today, even and. We feel that the the platform that we're building can be a driver of that change to to really change how people think about how new new brands and companies can get started and launch and grow. And if you fast forward five years, our hope is that we've created you know multiple consumer product brands and and many more to create a positive change in people's lives from a brand level and and build you know great community around those brands and build genuine brands. Hmm. While doing it with a platform that's really changing how consumer product companies start and grow uh, for the better, you know we've we've kind of taken that as the mission of you know take our experience, you know pair that with what's happening in the consumer product you know startup landscape, and really try to think differently about how those companies start and grow and how talented entrepreneurs can build those companies. There's definitely been <laughs> companies for you know, at least a hundred years who have been doing, you know, a multi-brand thing, whether it's big CPGs like Unilever or, or Kraft, or it's products like what LVMH does, you know, across m- many different brands of luxury products. Like, what do you think that you can learn from those types of companies versus 
uh, what you really want to do differently. Yeah, it's a really good point because we we look at them you know, frequently and I think they've done some amazing things uh, and obviously have a lot of things that are working. They also have a lot of challenges around, you know, innovation and and speed to market and what they, you know, how they, how they sell things digitally. So I think, you know, our goal is to try to bring together the best of both worlds, right? So you're bringing the best parts of um, being a new digitally native um, consumer product brand, pair that with the best parts of being a massive uh, CPG conglomerate with all those assets that you can bring to the table. And if you can do that successfully, you kind of create a, a really special situation where you can grow very rapidly, but be nimble and get the benefits of scale while still having all the, the benefits of being a new digitally native startup. And that's the, that's the goal. And I, I think new digitally native startups don't have that scale and the CPG conglomerates of the world don't have the innovation. And we're trying to bring, bring both of those two things together. Yeah, one of the things on my mind, just on a meta level, we, we had Studio Neat on the podcast. I'm guessing you, you know of them or know them. Uh, they, they're two guys who started <laughs> on Kickstarter with a lot of products uh, you know, in a similar vein. And they really challenged themselves and still do to essentially never hire anyone. They're trying to like basically... Those guys are great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they have, they have their own podcast. Of, yes, which it's amazing. To every single one and uh they those guys are awesome because so we we started at about the same time uh ish i think on kickstarter and they've gone about building a fantastic business that serves i think clearly their their ambitions uh as entrepreneurs and i think they're doing a fantastic job i think it's just totally different from right what we're doing but i think we did start in the same place (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess, but th- and that's the thing that that's that's kind of interesting to me because when I look at their company, I I really admire what they're doing. They, their podcast is called Thoroughly Considered. It's fascinating to me that they it's almost like a science experiment. They have made this, they've created this constraint for themselves, which is we're not going to hire anyone, and we want to see how far we can get, how many products we can maintain simultaneously, how much distribution we can get, you know, how much we can sell without hiring anyone. (laughs) And today, like the tools that we have available in terms of, you know, the software, I think they run off of Shopify, the fulfillment capabilities that exist are really quite impressive. And so it enables that kind of efficiency, I think that you're describing. But if you didn't have that constraint of like, let's say we never hire anyone, where does it go from here? And it seems like the the model that you're describing is sort of something like that, uh, that 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 brings some of that efficiency, but also you know allows people to to grow beyond the initial idea that they might have. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think that the the biggest difference there too is that unless I'm mistaken, they're primarily direct to consumer. So they're Correct. able yeah. to utilize all of those tools for, you know, primarily a Shopify uh, experience, which is, which is awesome. The conscious decision that Josh and I have made for our brands is to, to be truly omni-channel so that in, you know, in year one of like say a wild one, while they are a digitally native brand, you know, we do have, you know, store and stores at Bloomingdale's. We do have, you know, 96 store and stores at, at Nordstrom. We've got live retail experiences. And I just don't think you're able to do that with just, you know, two or three people. It's a lot uh, different when you're you're constraining yourself just to the digital landscape. And yeah, again, I, I love what those guys are doing. I think they've, they're incredible product folks, but I think from a business strategy standpoint and how we're building our brands is just a very different proposition. What's your point of view on omnichannel and you know why it is important to be a, in these uh, retail locations? Well, we, we got our start really as, as whole, wholesale people. So after we launched Kickstarter, our first collection was with West Elm that's owned by Williams-Sonoma. So we were sort of handed the book and the manual when it came to compliances and testing and scaled margins and how to how to survive um, and how to uh, to do business profitably with those entities. 
So I, I think it's a it's a pretty hard thing to be f- fully omnichannel, but we were kind of forced to to do it from the beginning. And I think it's super important as the landscape is constantly changing as you know, Facebook and Instagram get incredibly expensive when it comes to direct to consumer business. I think that the building out the core competencies to be flexible enough to do business in all phases is super important. Yeah, I'd second that. And I think it's core to how we've set up the platform. So from the very beginning, we wanted to create the platform in a way where you can look at a brand and say, what are like, what are like the right channels for this product to be sold in? You know, is it in a grocery aisle? Is it in a department store? Is it online? Is it on Amazon? And then be able to have the tools at, at you know, an entrepreneur's fingertips to be able to say, okay, I can, because the platform has these resources and these distribution channels, I can access any of these things at the right time. And instead of back solving for, you know, I'm a direct consumer brand and now my customer acquisition costs are too high and now I need to go into wholesale, we start out with the premise of here's a product and a brand and a consumer base. What's the right strategy? And for us, that is truly omnichannel, but but it really depends on the brand as to when you kind of pull those levers to enter into different channels and, and to really meet your customer where they want to find you. Yeah, and and when the direct to consumer movement really started, I think there was this idea that there was a cutting out the middleman kind of aspect where the margins could be slimmer because you're going direct to consumer and you don't have that markup and and that was also part of the story to the consumer. Over time some of those brands have built their own stores which, you know, still allows them to be vertical, but some of them have gone to retail and, you know, obviously Somehow there, there, there's a margin split there. What's your point of view on, on the long term of all of that? Where do you think it's going to balance out? I think like anything, you see things swing in kind of extremes. So you went from, you know, if you rewind 20 years, predominantly only wholesale businesses that were sold in brick and mortar. Then you saw it swing to almost you know business model as a marketing tool. So the, the direct consumer movement where you're your whole business and brand is built off of uh, a value play by cutting out the middlemen and people were breaching direct to consumer. And I think what you're seeing now is, is kind of like a normalization of somewhere in between, which is where, where we believe, you know, we should always end up, which is a more blended mix of say, looking at a brand and saying, this is where, you know, the right channels are for you as a brand not necessarily building a brand off of a um, a margin structure or a, a business model of direct consumer. So anything that we're starting has to work in in basically all channels from day one. Um, not that you'd enter into those channels, but you have to be prepared to do that. Because to us, that's the future of consumer brands is really meeting your customer where they want to find you. And you need to be able to access those channels at the right time. There's been a real decline, though, in a lot of um, the malls and the in the retail environment, and and it feels like what retail needs to be in the future looks a little bit different. You've mentioned Nordstrom; they come up a lot um, as as one of the channels and, and partners that a lot of direct to consumer brands go to. I'd love for you to describe what makes them so good as a partner, not just in terms of their retail presence, but also like as a company, when you're interfacing with them, what makes them different from other wholesale type of situations that you've worked with in the past? Sure. And I think that's a that's a great question because we work with them in different capacities for all three brands and really uh, have, have enjoyed the relationship. They make themselves a bit easier to deal with in the way that they have shorter turnaround times to make decisions. Uh, they're able to issue purchase orders with, a. it seems, uh, a little a little bit more ease than some of the other retailers. They're not afraid to try uh, new concepts and they're not afraid to invest in, you know, activations and events surrounding brand launches. They seem to be really interested in meeting and working with the brands. So the same way we talk about meeting the customer where they are, you know, Nordstrom is, you know, based in Seattle. And I think the typical 
salesperson brand interaction is to send a salesperson to Seattle or to wherever that retailer might be. Um, but Nordstrom kind of takes the time to, to fly out and come and visit with our brands uh, to see what they're doing, to collaboratively talk about how we're going to do business with one another. And then, you know, it sort of stays in touch throughout the the high times when it comes to sales and, and the holiday season and then, you know, strategies for looking at future years. There seems to be a really good amount of energy there. Not to say that there isn't at, at other retailers, but they do seem to be empowered from the top to to make those changes, to not be married to one way of doing business. They're open to new categories. Um, and again, that's not a knock about against anybody else. Um, it's just been across all three of the brands that we're working with. We're experiencing that across multiple channels and departments at Nordstrom. What was your approach, especially with the new brand, uh, to get accurate projections in terms of what you were going to sell through the holidays? In in year one, I mean, we made a, a bunch of assumptions and really utilized the knowledge and the learnings we had at WMP, having done this for six or seven years, to really refine our projections and and estimates, but there's no crystal ball. I think the interfacing with our retailers in a really uh, close way, um, making assumptions based on our sales history, and then making some bets on what we thought our own marketing efforts would uh, yield have led to a, a good amount of keeping in stock of stuff and you know fulfilling things on time. Obviously, we have our hiccups, but we've tried to rely on all of those various tools to, to project um, to where we're at currently. You talked about bulletproofing your supply chain. What does that mean to you? Uh, it just means having redundancies when it comes to suppliers. If one gets overloaded, it means setting up our fulfillment uh, down in Virginia to be ready for success. You know, not being surprised by a spike media day when when our direct-to-consumer retail orders jumps up really high, having constant communication, setting up in, in real-life touch points where we're meeting with one another and talking about the struggles and making sure that we're sort of stocked up and ready for whatever is that might happen this and last month. I think, I mean, in the in your career over the past uh, several years, the tools and software that have come out to support what you're doing, I mean, even including Kickstarter, have been so meaningful and important. I don't think that the, the kind of thing that you're doing today would have really been possible, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Where do you see the biggest gaps still today in terms of uh, the areas that are worthwhile for companies to be building and to be improving on on that kind of infrastructure side? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think you know one of the most powerful powerful things that's come about in the last couple of years and really grown is obviously the the Shopify ecosystem, and that includes both Shopify and then all of the the software that that plugs in and powers you know the e commerce universe. I think as that has you know grown and I think people see those those barriers to entry dropping of getting online and starting to sell stuff, the next question is what's the software that's really like managing those businesses? And we're talking about like basically ERP systems. I think that's a really interesting field. We talk about it a lot because you know we've kind of over seven years really had to put that all together ourselves. And, and I think today there's a huge opportunity in looking at how many small to medium sized businesses there are how you know and that they're now growing relatively quickly i think that there needs to be some innovation in that category of of small to medium sized business uh, like erp management bringing all these different tools that have come up into you know one consolidated place and i i think people are working on that currently which is exciting to me yeah, definitely. Uh, well, it's definitely something that Lumi is working on very actively in the sense that we've been building our own ERP software for, I, don't get, I guess, four years now. And it's uh, for ourselves, but also that what we expose to the, the customer is, you know, a version of that. I don't know, maybe Shopify will someday think of itself as an ERP and, and what they're doing with Plus maybe will go more and more in that direction. But it, it seems like their angle is more you know, it's it's the best in breed kind of model where you're going to get a bunch of these things to plug in together and kind of the idea of where ERP is going is still kind of fuzzy because there there's definitely the integrated model, but more and more there are these specialist tools that are very successful at doing one piece of your business 
And there are these great connecting tools now like Zapier and Trade.io and these different things that are that are coming around that, that make gluing all the pieces together easier. Do you have a point of view on all of that and how, you know, where that's going to go or what the ecosystem needs? It's a really interesting time because I, I think you're seeing kind of decentralization of a lot of tools. So you're seeing people piece them all together. My personal opinion is I think there's the the next iteration of say like what an Oracle looks like is really you know the software that centralizes all that and brings it all together so you can you can select the pieces that make the most sense for your type of business versus say the one size fits all model that you know is really tough to try to fit your business into the value that i see is being able to bring it all together so some of those tools that are kind of consolidating all of the the more specific tools for your business that's what you know i think is the future are there um, tools that you use at Very Great that, I, I don't know, that you've discovered or implemented in the past couple of years that have really made a huge difference for you? I mean, some of them seem really obvious, but the Salesforce tool that we're using and utilizing across all brands is super helpful. Um, again, it seems obvious, but I, I'm a huge fan of Slack and what's that that's done for for our company and brands in regards to just connectivity across the the brands and the platform. Shopify, I'd say when they rolled out their their wholesale uh, component, that that was a, a really big part of um, at least one of our brands. Uh, growth strategies, and that was really exciting to see. And it, you know, with Shopify in particular, it's really exciting to see them constantly challenge themselves and continue to provide tools uh, for businesses like ourselves. Um, and it's it's been really exciting to sort of hear what's up next for them. But I think more than anything, like having a team that's willing to constantly adapt and challenge themselves with like, hey, this is the tool that we're using now, but maybe there's a better one and considering it and you're not being not jumping from program to program, but really assessing whether or not something adds value to the whole platform and all of our our brands and then really having the open mind to implementing it is a real testament to our team because they're constantly flexible and taking advantage of those things versus just doing something because it's the way it's always been done or it's the tool that we've always used. With those tools becoming so much more accessible in platforms like yours that are making it easier uh, to to like start a business, I think that there's been a somewhat of a like signal to noise type of problem that has been occurring. There's just so much uh, launching every day, and it's a little hard to parse what the good from the bad. What are you relatively optimistic or pessimistic or somewhere in between about where that will go long term as as you know more and more brands continue to be able to leverage all those tools to get off the ground easily. Yeah, totally. I think it's a really interesting time for the consumer innovation economy. I think there's been a, to your point a ton of new entrants in direct consumer brands that have started and and really seen the you know the the barriers to entry decrease and that's eased a lot of people into the market. I think the challenge that I think everyone is facing now is how do you build build real brands and brand value versus launching product. And that's something that we you know talk a lot about internally is we need to be building brands that you know add value to our customers' lives, solve a problem for them and and genuinely build a brand that people come back to as the trusted source in, in that category. And we're laser focused on doing that over time because I, I do agree that you know there's there's been almost a commoditization of product and brand is more important than ever. And building that community around those brands is is what we're focused on for the future because Ultimately, consumers don't need a thousand options in one specific product category. They need they really need the best and they need a brand that they can rely on. And that's what we're focused on building. And to do that, you know, we're trying to build a platform that can empower people to do that faster and better and reach more people in a more efficient way. So we're excited about the future. I mean, I think for for brands and consumer products, it's never been more exciting. But there's also a lot of challenges for, you know, once you're live, like how do you actually scale and grow a brand? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I see is that there's 
there's sort of um, a lack of a middle ground. Uh, there, there's a lot of brands that can get started very easily. And then there's extremely large companies. Um, and it's, you know, if you want to be truly innovative, like you can set up a certain amount of innovation through your business model. And there's certain things that you can innovate on in terms of, you know, the materials and ingredients and things that you use. But if you want to go to the like next level of, of innovation, you need a certain amount of scale because you need to be able to get something into manufacturing that uh, wasn't possible before. So you need, you know, a certain amount of volume to be able to push that through. And like, it does feel like, you know, companies like say Apple or Google who are really, you know, pushing the edge, like, you can't do what they do as a small company, right? But there is doesn't feel like there's necessarily a lot of middle ground these days. And I wonder how we get back to that place in terms of kind of R&D and innovations that go beyond what is possible for a very small team. Right. And I, I would say that we that there is some middle ground. I think you do need to get to a certain critical mass of like the size of your business. But if you look at our, our wireless power business, Courant, that brand has truly innovated in multi-device charging, truly innovated when it comes to mobile wireless power in a way that Apple really hasn't yet. And if you take a deep look at the, the product set, the ecosystem that we've launched, I think that we challenged ourselves internally from an industrial design perspective, from a functional perspective, from an aesthetic and sort of where the, the product we placed in retail. And we challenged ourselves a year and a half ago to create a best-in-class wireless power brand. And I think that we were able to get there in, on the backs of the platform and the resources that the platform has, but that did definitely take a a critical mass of resources and purchasing power and all of the things that that we're able to bring to the table. I think it's somewhere in between, you know, where we were seven years ago, um, you know, working out of a, a box truck in a warehouse and where Apple is. But it 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 definitely does does take a certain level of capital when it comes to product innovation. That's truly meaningful and revolutionary. Can you describe a little bit about the product development process for those products? I, I know that Apple had a product in that vein that mysteriously disappeared, or like a multi-device charger. I'm sure they'll course correct and make something that's absolutely stunning. Um, but th- I think they were a little ambitious in what they were trying to solve for uh, with the, the air power. Um, but in general, the the product development cycle that we have, like the process that we have at Very Great kind of runs through all three brands and and future brands. You know, the practice that we have of identifying a a real need, identifying the best in class products that are trying to address that need, and then figuring out how to make something even better is a process that we hold at the platform and the brand level. And we try to bring to literally everything we make, whether it's a dog collar, a dog leash, whether it's the the porter line at WMP of of functional, aesthetically appealing, uh, portable uh, food and beverage product. We we really try and take that mentality and that process, um, agnostic of what what factory we're working with or what the supply chain actually looks like. We have a a process that kind of runs it cor- its course through through each product and each brand, and I think that. Um, we're gonna we're gonna continue to do that because it seems to be playing out pretty pretty well currently. Can you describe more about that process? What is it? How are you validating your your ideas? I mean, it, it's different for each brand, but I think for say using Wild One as an example, we l- really looked at the landscape of okay, we want to create the go to essentials for for being a pet parent and specifically within dogs. And so we looked at from a product selection basis, what do you use every day? Let's let's start there and really make it like the biggest impact on someone's every day with their dog. And then drilling down into individual products, it's looking at, okay, what are the pain points that people have with these specific products and these products as a as a set, you know, that you're using every day? And how can we solve them? Um, and that's where our our creative and design team comes in so our industrial designers really lean in you know in partnership with our factories and material experts and they come up with theses that you can then test with consumers so you know from a, a harness standpoint we looked at that specifically and said why are all these harnesses made out of this really gross coarse mesh material 
you know, why can't this be made out of something that you would use when you say go to the gym? And we looked at like the athleisure market and said, what, what are the materials that people are putting on their bodies that we think should be, you know, maybe given to your dog as well to improve that user experience. And we can take that, we can make samples very rapidly using our relationships with our factories. And then we can test those with consumers. So we're doing testing with both consumers, you know, direct consumer, so the actual end buyers. And then we're also testing, you know, as Eric mentioned, with actual buyers from large retail sure. chains that we have those, those relationships with. So you're gathering all these data points to then inform your product development. And you're doing this in a very rapid, uh, a rapid way that because we have all of these resources internally, you're not going out and trying to find like a freelance industrial designer and then pairing that with a supply chain expert and trying to like put all those pieces together. Everybody's shoulder to shoulder in one room, basically going after this, this mission. And it's as, as granular as what material are we using on that harness? And as macros, you know, what category are we going after as a brand? So it, it kind of brings together all those resources in one place. With Wild One, you have a pretty broad set of products. Um, it seems like, I mean, not just in terms of all the different colors of the items, but it seems like you have a couple dozen different major SKUs. And I'm curious what gave you the confidence to launch and, and you know, grow that array so quickly. Yeah, I think it was one of the largest pain points that we identified with with all of us being dog parents and having dogs is like, where do you buy all your stuff? Like, where is the place that you can get your your matching essentials that all work together? And there was there was no place. So it was kind of core to what the mission of the brand was, was to be able to offer a, a set of essentials that wasn't just one product. It was everything that you need for you know, being a pet parent. And we looked at, you know, a lot of consumer buying patterns of where they were buying stuff. And it was such a mishmash of, you know, I got my collar on Amazon, I got my leash from Chewy, and I'm buying my treats from the grocery store. And all of them were disjointed brands that ultimately didn't really work together very well. And there was no place where you could go and buy the essentials. And so that was kind of key to the the brand mission from the very beginning, which is why you see Wild One in, in the different categories and why it looks a little bit more broad than you would maybe expect. As the platform continues to grow and you bring on you know new entrepreneurs to take on different markets, I'm curious, where do you see yourselves personally um, evolving as people? Because you know, your role becomes more of a meta role of like enabling these different people uh, and maybe less so on the product development or some of these things that you've been in the weeds on yourselves in the past. Is that exciting for you? What are the things that you're still having trouble letting go of? Uh, you know, where do you see yourselves like over the next few years evolving? It's a good question. I think we we asked ourselves that a lot, and I think Eric and I have a, a special relationship where we've known each other for so long that we're we're constantly kind of evaluating that and talking about what's next for for us as people too. But ultimately, like we're we like building stuff, and I think we've built uh, you know start we built one product, and then we built a brand and a collection of products around that, and then we've built a platform. And I think now this next phase is really building both the new brands and then also building kind of people's careers within consumer product as well. So whether that's, you know, a, a talented entrepreneur that we can help in building their brand or if it's, you know, an industrial designer that wants to build their career and, and make new stuff, that's, that's kind of our, our role if you want to get real meta on it. Is, is building. And, you know, for us, this is just kind of the, the tip of the iceberg of what we want to achieve. You know, we jokingly say that, like, it feels like day one every day, because I think we're just at the beginning of what we want to build. And we're lucky enough to have a pretty long term view in that, you know, and having worked together for, for 15 years. So we're, we're kind of playing the long game there. It definitely feels like just the beginning. Um, it will be really fascinating to catch up with you 
a year from now, two years from now, see what new brands you've launched, see how uh, the current ones are doing. If people want to learn more about everything that you're doing, where should we point them to? Yeah, I think um, just sending them to very great's website, verygreat.nyc. Um, you're able to kind of see a quick description of, of the platform and then sort of link outs to all of the brands. The brand pages are obviously more way more flushed out than the, the holding co, so to speak. With the platform, we, we haven't really built out the website too, too much. Um, but you're able to go there and kind of see everything that we're up to. A lot of, you know, we, we are growing very quickly. A lot of, a lot of careers, uh, <laughs> are starting here and we have a lot of, uh, jobs and roles that we're hiring for. Um, but I think that would be the, the best place to start. If someone has an idea or a passion around a specific market and they, you know, want to reach out to you and, and take advantage of, you know, what you're building as a platform, what, what, what should they do and what do you look for? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a really interesting time with the platform right now where we've obviously just launched the, the two new brands and we're currently recruiting entrepreneurs and residents for the next um, call it class of brand launches. So that process is, is relatively informal right now, um, but we're, we're going to kick that off in kind of the new year. So if anybody does ever want to reach us, I mean, I think our emails are all out there. So <laughs> I'm just Josh at verygreat.nyc and Eric's at eric at verygreat.nyc. And honestly, like we love talking to people about their ideas, about whether there's an opportunity to work with us or not. We love helping people and giving advice. So always feel free to reach out and, and we're here. Awesome. Well, Eric, Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you, Stefan. Ooh, one last thing before we go. I'm talking to you at home. What's your favorite brand these days? Is there something that you think is really well made? Or maybe someone that you'd love for me to talk to? Send us a tweet. We are at Lumi, L-U-M-I, on Twitter. We're making this show for you, so tell us what you want to hear, and we'll make it happen. Thanks. See you next time.